Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right, so we have with us today Rod Johnson, who um, many of you probably know from Spring, creator of Spring Framework, and uh, who has been up here to Crested Butte, actually. Yeah, we were trying to figure out what the year was. Do you have any recollection? It was one hi, of my Hi, Bruce. Look, I, I'm pretty sure I went twice. You know, I think it was probably That's... 2003 and 2005. Okay, um, that could yeah. work. So, yeah, it... it was when we were doing the early experiments with Martin Fowler. And yes, I was it thinking... was Martin who invited me, actually. Yes, and, it yeah, was like... I, that was actually really cool because I think Martin just read my book and reached out and invited me. So he did. And it's like, you go, Oh, Martin Fowler. Yeah. And I was thinking about him today. I'm going, yeah, it's like he came along, he waved his magic idea wand and then, you know, and then he moved on. What a weird superpower to have. And I'm thinking, no, that's an awesome, to be able to give people good ideas. Yeah. That is an awesome superpower. That's, Martin is a superhero. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's got the idea of magic wand. Yeah, for sure. he does. Yeah. Well, I guess he's just, you know, I mean, uh, he's really intellectually curious, I guess. So that's yes. kind of how he operates. Like he goes deep mm-hmm. into something and then, you know, uh, moves on to other things. Yeah. Yeah. So um, good to have you, Rod. Thanks for joining us. And um, hopefully you can make it back up to Crested Butte sometime. Yeah, I, I remember to, when well, you were I'd here. I'd like to come in winter sometime, though. I hear you've got nice skiing mountains. Yep, I've only been we yeah, we do. And yeah, the winter tech forum would be the good time to come for skiing. But yeah, I remember you, tr- uh, I tried to understand uh, aspect-oriented programming, and you were explaining it. And I, it didn't, I, I didn't you know, work. I sort of got it a little bit, but I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't completely get it. Did Spring exist at that point? Was it? No, no. I don't think so. This so. was. This was. This was. You were Rod just... was kind of throwing around ideas in his head around aspect-oriented programming and how it could mm-hmm. be the foundation for something better yeah. in in Java land. Yeah, I feel like it was. Is that, is that correct? The very first time I went, Spring existed, but was like on SourceForge because that was the yep. thing back then. So yeah, there was a reasonable amount of Spring code on SourceForge, but I mean, it was only kind of well, it, it was earlier than early adoption. But I, I imagine I probably went back to wherever I was staying in the evening and did a couple of hours coding on Spring every night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The second right, time, yeah. I know there were a couple of other people from the Spring team there. There was Ooh. Mark Pollock and Alex Sevich. Um, I don't know. I think I invited Mark. I Somebody else must have invited Alex. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was fun. At that well. point, it was established, yeah. Yeah, but at that point, I, I had a faction. It wasn't just... <laughs> yeah. Uh, a posse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was in the summertime. So you you haven't been here in the winter then to experience the skiing and all that. So I have not. Actually, I don't think I've skied in Colorado. It's probably... No, I don't think I have. I've actually yeah. skied in a lot of other places. But... <laughs> well, if you like steep and... Um, yeah, steep and double blacks and all that, then uh, you'll have to come out here for for uh, skiing Crested Butte because it gets, it's pretty wild. It's not only that. It's, yeah, there's a, it, couple, we do, there's a couple of green and blue roads. We do but. have the largest amount of extreme terrain in the continental U.S. Yeah. So, so yeah. more than more than Jackson? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it, it's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. There's many many places I've never been. Oh no, and I will never go. <laughs> I will never go. No, no. Um, yeah. Well, um, so I guess that one of the things I was thinking about asking you was you you've been on a journey for you know programming journey for many years, and I just want to hear a little bit about your journey from from Java Enterprise Spring on to Scala, and then TypeScript and and yeah, where where you are now. So I don't know, give us the give us a lowdown on what your journey through programming has been like, where you've gone and where you are now. I guess my journey has been an alternation between exploration phases that were kind of driven by curiosity and kind of implementation phases which were driven by building something, building a company, building a product. So I've always gone through those switches. And I really like both of those things like i mean it is very very satisfying to see a product come together and especially to create a team as well as a product and you know see that it's something that goes on really strongly and becomes a lot bigger than you as an individual so i find that satisfying but you know there is no pleasure in life quite the same as learning a new technology or learning a new programming language because you know that kind of enlarges your brain or activates parts of your brain that you previously didn't use enough so that is also deeply satisfying yeah yeah it seems like that's something that i don't know not enough people in programming do Maybe that's a judgment against people but um we i was talking on twitter with some people and they were like it was rust was was saying how it was uh it would be impossible to do um oh to have like syntax without semicolons this is in the the great semicolon debate of this week on twitter um which was which was very fun um but but somebody pointed to oh it's kit from the zeo team pointed to how rust had decided not to do um no semicolons and Kit was posting snippets of the conversation in the Rust community about how it would just be impossible for a programming language to not have semicolons and, you know, with all these different constraints. And they were very clearly unaware of Scala. Like Mm. the Scala had already solved all those problems. And it's like, gosh, you know, like I, I love, I would love for more developers to experience more programming languages and get that brain enlargement. So they would even know that it was possible to not have semicolons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, that's uh... just for that one alone would be sufficient. Yeah, well, see, but I and have then... to say on that, it's not without a cost. But <laughs> that's right. It's, yeah, like Scala yeah. compiler is slower, I'm sure, because yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I think, look, to be honest, I think I went too long with um, the C plus plus then Java um, stream. Like, I mean, you know that. Well, obviously, created wrote a few books, created um, Spring, then Spring Source. So that 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 implementation phase was like a you know ten plus a year long cycle, phase. Yeah. And beyond during that time, I really didn't look at other languages except for competitive analysis. So, for example, I remember looking at Rails. I had zero interest in Ruby as a language. I still have zero interest in Ruby as a language. <laughs> With um, all my interest was okay. This is a competitive web thing you know, what can we learn from it? And ultimately yeah. we learn yeah. a lot of things from Rails, more from Rails than from Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, it just wasn't an option for me to put in the time to, you know, look at other things deeply apart from obviously Aspect J. 
Um, whereas once I had moved on from that, I did start looking around and that's what, that's what brought me to Scala. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you were doing quite a bit with Scala for a while and, and we're on the board of TypeSafe, now Lightbend. Are you still on the board? For- um, no, I am not though. Okay. I'm still, I'm, am an investor in the company, so I still have an interest actually. I quite coincidentally had a email exchange with Janus the other night. Oh, good. So. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, you, so that was, uh, overlapped with the time that I was at, at TypeSafe and, and was really fun to get your perspective on Scala coming from so many years in the enterprise Java world and, and kind of seeing how you saw Scala and, and its potential and, and things that it could be. And one of the things, maybe that part of the journey that, that would be interesting to hear about is you, you and I worked together for the Scala Days 2015, did you say it was? 2013. 2013. Yeah. And you did the keynote on, the, the gist of it was about how Scala could become a mainstream language. And that was kind of at an inflection point of like, Scala can kind of choose which direction it wants to go. And I don't know, tell us about your recollection of that presentation from almost 10 years ago. That was, it was highly entertaining. Remember, it was in a beautiful um, off-Broadway theatre, yeah. um, which I guess yeah, was the Sheila cool and Mark Brewer had this knack for finding amazing places. Uh, yeah. So it was quite a beautiful environment. I don't think I've ever spoken in an environment quite like that, a bit yeah. more stylish than we generally get in tech. And I yeah. remember the reaction to the talk was possibly the most polarising talk I've ever seen. Like, if I remember correctly, probably two-thirds, three-quarters of the audience gave it a standing ovation while the remaining remainder was sitting scowling and not clapping at all. So it clearly... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And essentially the gist of it was that Scala's pretty great. There are things that are really problematic about Scala, like binary compatibility, the fact that every single release of Scala breaks a ton of things. Hey... No, you guys don't like Java a whole lot, but just hold your nose a little bit while I tell you the reasons Java is as popular as it is. <laughs> um, and maybe we should learn. We don't need to become Java, but you know, maybe we should reflect on those things. There are reasons um, why Java is so popular. And actually, didn't I start? I started that talk by copying the old idea of Pearl poetry. That's right. I, I remember I the poetry. Everybody knew about Pearl poetry, I guess, back yeah. when... I was, maybe it was slightly after uni, but like one of my uni buddies used to write Pearl poetry. I thought everybody knew that you can write, you both huh. can and do write poetry in Pearl as a thing. But apparently it got a bigger impact because not that many people knew that. So I wrote a poem in um, Scala. Obviously it did yeah. need to be, because Scala is strongly typed, there did need to be some code behind the poem. But like what I showed did compile, a part of it compiled and it looked exactly like a poem. Uh, And my point was, you know, languages you can write poetry in have pros and cons. So essentially (laughs) I was arguing that Scala needed to make some more pragmatic choices to become a mainstream language. And I predicted that the title of the talk, I think, was Scala 2018. And the argument was that... Yeah, the moment of truth will be 2018. Scala will obviously, will be either the next mainstream language or it will have just gone back into its niche. And here are some of the things you need to think about. Yeah. Looking back on it, I I think, to be honest, I was on on the money. 
And, you know, I think it was, I am not sure whether I mentioned it, but I was certainly thinking it, that something like Kotlin would come up, that would do enough of the things that people want done, um, that the extra bells and whistles of Scala would, you know, really not present that amazing a trade-off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are still things in Scala. I haven't written Scala probably for five years now. And there are still things I miss every day, like the fact that every compound statement is an expression. Yeah. It's like other C family languages. That's like the semicolons, right? Yeah. It's like obviously Martin or somebody asked the question, what if every statement was an expression? What if it yeah. doesn't matter if it's in curlies? What if it returns something? And, yeah, and once you experience uh, it, you, oh, you, you have a hard time going you back. You go, right? why Why aren't they all like that? That's yeah. the real question. It's like, who thought it was a good idea to not yeah. do that? It's just that maybe no one had ever seen that possibility yeah, before. Yeah, I don't know. But like with I, semicolons, it's like, like until you see the potential yeah. of not having semicolons, you don't realize how nice a world without semicolons is. Yeah, but this is even more fundamental yeah. because it's like, yeah, everything generates a result why why do we treat why do we have to treat it differently in one case it's almost like the red and blue or the you know the different yeah, colored, colored functions function. for async and await yeah. when you really start digging into it you go oh wait we don't really need to do this do we yeah oh yeah oh, well i mean i i think it just makes things so elegant like it really annoys me now when i have to use a mutable variable um because i can't do that like for example i want a switch statement to return um a value yeah uh, so yeah that that's probably the single biggest thing i miss but i mean it look scala is a really beautiful language in many ways it's just that if you're going to have a large team building something it is absolutely certain that you will have somebody who came from a Haskell background who will write Scala that will explode the brains of anyone who looks at it. Yeah. That person will not only do it, they will take pride in doing it. And the only way you'll stop them doing it is by firing them. Um, and then they'll probably blog about your company. Uh, so it, it, there are practical problems that occur with a language like that. Whereas a language, if you have to do something that requires a fairly large team, a language like Java is really pretty safe. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I personally, I will never be one of these people who hate Java. Um, I think it's a very important and very beneficial language. I personally don't choose to write Java um, at the moment, but I think there is a very, very important need for a language like that that actually doesn't doesn't try to do too much and doesn't try to do too clever be too clever yeah it's like team structure and team size are an important factor in programming language uh, how good a programming language is for you and in a if you're in a team with thousands of developers I think what you're saying about Scala and the multitude of ways that people can write Scala has some real downsides, whereas Java and the constraints of the language work better at that scale. I yeah, Scala has a number of, I don't know, are they experimental features? Are they just in dark corners or whatever that I don't, you know, and, and somebody could come along and decide, oh, we're going to use this feature and now everybody else on the team has to understand it in order to be able to read the code. And it's like, 
I love that Scala experiments with things, but I totally see if you had a team of more than a few people who aren't all Scala wonks, ah, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. It yeah. also, this is actually, this brings me to a really interesting point I've always thought about languages, which is that although we've been talking about how languages, learning a new language can grow parts of your brain, um, I believe people over-index on languages. A language yeah. is just one part of the story. So, for mm -hmm. example, in the Scala community, one of the things that they did is they refused to use any Java library. So, for example, well, Spring's a framework. It's not even just a library, but not just Spring, like anything else that was mainstream Java. Guess what? They're in a language where they could consume that. They could even put a trivia little Scala wrapper on it that would make it look beautiful. But no, 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 no. No, can't possibly use that. Got a different Scala from the ground. Make it Scala idiomatic. that we ended with a bunch of libraries that were buggy. Take, for example, transaction management. Yeah. Spring transaction management is something that's been hardened by very smart people with access to, you know, people within the teams in the application servers when that was still a thing, all that kind of stuff for 15 years. It's been used by probably millions of people. It is pretty much as stable as you can possibly get um, a piece of framework code. You go and write your Scala transaction library, you're going to go through the same amount of learning. The difference is you're going to go through it 10 yeah. times slower because you don't have anything like the same community behind you. So mm -hmm. I think that, and I'm sure that was one of the things in my talk, I think that really held Scala back. It's interesting, the closure community, as far as I understand, have not done that. And they're happier to use Java libraries that they can consume. And I think that's a really sensible choice. So if you're solving a whole lot of real world problems, yeah. language is, I think, often a second order issue. For me, the that comes out when I'm doing anything involving ML. And I've played around a bit with neural networks and TensorFlow in the last couple of years for my own amusement. I do that in Python. Yeah. I do not like programming in Python, personally. Um, I, again, Python is a language that I think is a really good language and has a really valuable niche. So this is not me saying I think Python's a bad language. It's saying I personally find that Python is not a language that was created for people like me. Um, <laughs> but you know what? If I'm doing something with training a neural network, I'd be dumb to do it in another language. Because in Python, any answer I want to anything, I can Google in 30 seconds. Whereas if I go and do it in a different language that I might prefer, I am creating a whole world of pain. And honestly, what for? I mean, I have like probably maybe a thousand lines of Python in most of my machine learning projects. So, I mean, compared to what's happening with TensorFlow and all the ML stuff, it's kind of a pretty trivial thing. And to me, that it is a mature aspect of programming to be able to hold your nose and say, you know, maybe I don't love this language or I don't love this tool, but it is the practical way to solve this problem. We tend to get pretty attached to our programming languages and communities and have a hard time admitting that, that maybe we should use a different language for a given problem set. And and I think there's the ethos uh, of it where there Scala community, I feel like a lot of the mentality of it that's kind of unspoken is, oh, we can do that better. 
Yeah. And I think that that's why they didn't use the Java libraries is because they're, it's a lot of really smart people who really do believe and probably can do it better. It's just that the amount of time it takes to iterate through the real world challenges and optimizations. I didn't realize that. I mean, what you said about Scala, I didn't realize that somebody in the Scala world had said, no, we're not going to use these pre-existing tested libraries. Cause I mean, you were talking about Python. That's what brings a lot of people to Python. It's like, I have a problem to solve. Oh, there's this library that might solve it. Oh, I wonder if I do this. Oh, my problem is solved. Now you, you get that kind of, I don't have to write the code <laughs> experience. Mm -hmm. And so to actually turn away from this body of tried and tested code, is an interesting choice. Yeah. 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 I don't think it was any single person who consciously set that out as an agenda. It just kind of grew out of the community. And mm. I think it was very, very unfortunate because again, I think language people who get really into languages confuse language smarts with general smarts. So, you know, just because for example, um, you might be more fluent um, in truly advanced, obscure mathematical language constructs or choose to use them, does not mean that you actually have a better understanding of a particular tech domain than, say, a Java programmer who's worked on it for years. I mean, yeah. it may well be that that person is equally smart, but they decided to spend their intellectual effort on things other than language um, syntax constructs. Yeah. 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 Domain problems. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which ultimately is what gets you to business value. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the scholar community is interesting that way. I see them solving a lot of problems that are not directly tied to business value or trying to accomplish the. Yeah. The, but the, the, but the they problem. have moved the whole programming world forward by the experiments that they've done. Yeah. So it's oh, yeah. like, I, I think it's it's a good trade-off that we got. Yeah, maybe Scala isn't the dominant language at this point, but the things that we've learned from the Scala experiments have been very really beneficial for everyone. Super valuable well, for yeah. everybody. You know, they've totally influenced agree, all yeah. these other languages. Yeah, and I mean, you can write, you can write beautiful code in Scala. Uh, yeah. yeah. All of my Scala code is beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, you went through the Scala phase and, and uh, we got to, to do some of that together and that was a lot of fun. Um, then where did you go after Scala? So after Scala, um, we started to do more, I guess, on the client side, which got me interested in TypeScript. Yeah. And... <clears throat> I'm a huge fan of TypeScript. Yeah. I think it is truly impressive what they've done, taking the JavaScript um, language and ecosystem and gradually erecting a pretty damn nice type edifice on top of it. Yeah. Uh, I found to my great surprise that I enjoyed programming in TypeScript probably more than I enjoyed programming in Scala. Huh. Uh, and it just felt that little bit more pragmatic. The type system is actually very good. The TypeScript yeah. system is surprisingly good. I mean, of course, there is some beautiful stuff like the everything being an expression in Scala that you don't have. 
But the type system, like algebraic types, there's a whole range of things that you can do in TypeScript that are really pretty nice. Yeah. Uh, so I've been predominantly coding in TypeScript probably for the last four years <laughs> um, yeah. or so. And again, it started out with that practical choice. Like, where is this code going to run? Okay, it has to be written in some form of JavaScript. Yeah. Uh, and a JavaScript oh, I like so. strong types. Yes, I like strong types. So let's have a look at um, TypeScript. Yeah. I, I actually think that the notion of adding typing to a dynamic language works really, really well. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I don't think it's anything we've had before unless. Um, well, we experienced it with Flex. Yeah. Actually, it yeah. sort of went the other way. What you could turn it off, right? It yeah. was, it had uh, optional dynamic typing. Yeah, so you could turn this. You know, if your code was starting to get too messy because of the static typing, you could temporarily turn off the static typing and write what you wanted. Yeah. And then, of course, Python's added uh, mm. static optional static typing, and it's I'm totally addicted to it at this point. Yeah, I love it where you want it. Python type-ins, I use them exclusively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's a, yeah, I, I, it really annoys me when I have to read code in a library that hasn't done that um, because yeah, all which my is code. Most code. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gradual typing, I think is one of the- Yeah, the gradual typing, I think is the mm -hmm. um, term I'm looking for. And I think that works really, really well. Yeah. I, I, John DeGoes has this kind of knock against gradual typing that said, he said something like gradual typing so that you can find out about your errors gradually <laughs> in like a snarky you know, sure. way. And I was like, yeah, I feel very snarky about that. But pragmatically, like there is a lot of people who have a much better experience finding out about their errors gradually than, than trying to get everything to satisfy a compiler mm. when you may not actually understand what types you need to define yet. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. and there are also some things where the compiler isn't quite smart enough yet. Like one thing that bugs me is the ternary operator. Yeah. Because we don't have everything being an expression, I have to use the ternary operator. I would, I never use it in Scala. Um, yeah. But um, with the ternary operator, like obviously if you do if condition, um, the TypeScript compiler is smart enough to know that, for example, if this thing was defined, that you can access it within that block. Whereas yeah. if you use that like the smart, kind of thing in a ternary expression, it doesn't work. And oh, so like there's like in TypeScript, the, the what I would call in Kotlin or what they call smart casting, where it knows that you've checked that it's this type and now you can reference it as that type without having to do a cast. So yeah. TypeScript does that, but then it doesn't do it in a ternary expression, only in only yes. in a, if so. If that I'll... really does annoy me because I end up having to either use TS ignore or do a as any, which is like ugly. Um, so, but by and large, I think the compiler is really pretty smart. I mean, I think, I don't know what the equivalent is in TypeScript, but like um, the writing a little function to say is, say that A is foo. Um, yeah. That works really, really nicely. 
yeah. so yeah. In in TypeScript, and I've only done a little bit of TypeScript, so I'm I don't I'm not I don't have a very good understanding of a lot of the language parts of it, but um does does TypeScript have the ability to do let's say you're doing a if uh if else and you have two different types that are returned between the the true and the false, does TypeScript turn that into an ADT, uh, some type of those two types? So TypeScript will know if, if there is um, a binary choice, um, TypeScript will know in the else that yeah. this is the other thing. Yeah. Intersection of the two types. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I haven't tried that. I'm not sure. So one of the things that as we've been exploring Scala 3 that was really amazing was that you probably experienced this in Scala 2 where it would go up the type hierarchy and find the most common parent across the two different types. Whenever you have something that can return two different types, yeah. it'll just go up to the common parent. Whereas now in Scala 3, it doesn't go up the hierarchy. It assembles a new some type that that is the or the bar uh, mm -hmm. of those and so now you get a new anonymous type for for mm -hmm. those and the the developer ergonomics of that like automatic sum typing is is pretty amazing wow mm -hmm. that's really cool yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and I, maybe maybe typescript does it i'll have to look at python it does it python does it mm -hmm. the automatic well, sum typing mm -hmm. yeah cool mm -hmm. it just makes so much sense when you're working when you have a language with some type support to, to do that automatic um, subtyping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, so you did, you've, you've done uh, some TypeScript and, and enjoyed it for the most part. A few, a few little uh, places where it wasn't, didn't give you the power that Scala gave you, but um, you, you then built Atomist uh, in large part on TypeScript. Is that, is that accurate? So Atomist, the languages involved um, on the server side are predominantly Clojure, running on the JVM. And on the client side, because we kind of had a thick client that would connect to the server, um, was Node and TypeScript. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the... Um, the part of Atomist that's actually ended up being most strategic is written in Clojure. Um, okay. So that's now, you know, the thing that um, Docker are vigorously moving forward is actually virtually all written in Clojure. Nice. Huh. That's cool. So then on the, the TypeScript side, a lot of the plugins that people were building for Atomist those were pre predominantly coded in TypeScript. Is that right? Like you're they were pretty much all TypeScript. Yeah. I mean, there might have been some JavaScript, but predominantly TypeScript. And I mean, I think for any library at this point in the JavaScript ecosystem, I mean, having types, ideally the thing should be written in TypeScript, but it really does need to provide types. It really annoys me um, yeah. when I find something that doesn't have um, types. And it yeah. does seem to be the way things are moving. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a big part of that ecosystem is moving to TypeScript for a very good reason. Did you look at, or have you looked at WebAssembly much? I have not. I have a bunch of friends who keep um, telling me I need to look at it, but maybe that's the next area where I explain my brain. Yeah. Have you, have you um, looked at it? 
just, you know, trying to keep up a little bit and understand what's going on. You know, that's primarily it. I haven't written anything in anything that generates WebAssembly, but um, but it's it's kind of fascinating, especially the idea that it could one day displace JavaScript. Yes. yes. JVM. No. And JavaScript. No, JavaScript. Yeah. WebAssembly. All yeah. the things. Yeah. Well, JavaScript That's, first, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I have been, been doing a lot more. There's been a lot more energy, actually, to displace the JVM. Is that right? Yeah. 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 WebAssembly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. being like this portable runtime for... Boy, if we get a new virtual machine, it'd sure like it to have better support for immutability. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can see the potential. I have been doing more stuff in the browser lately. I've always avoided UI programming like the plague <laughs> because it always made me feel dirty. Um, yeah. Like every few years, I dip my toe back in the water and write something, and always think, "Ugh, that's really yeah. horrible code," and I'm yeah, not even sure it's my fault. Felt um, and most recently, I've been doing stuff in React, obviously yeah. in TypeScript. It doesn't feel like horrible code. I'm actually quite impressed. I think we may have finally gotten to the point where we're starting to get libraries like React or frameworks that really enable you to write testable, nice um, UI code. feels very different. Hmm. I feel like I was reading something recently about React, how they, they did something to kind of screw up the whole component model of React. And, and newer versions or something, but I don't know the details. Well, they changed from classes to functions. Okay. Um, <laughs> which was a pretty massive change. I think they were probably right, but I suspect it may have made the learning curve tougher. And now both models exist, so that's kind of not ideal. I'm using purely the function model. But, but, yeah, I can see if you're familiar with it, the notion of the component as a class like makes obvious sense for people who know object-oriented programming. Whereas the way in which the functions work with other hook functions, the side effect and the like, it's actually very powerful, but it is conceptually more complex, I think. Yeah. I was fortunate I got into it after they'd made the change, so I learned the new way. Uh, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess coming into it from the more function-oriented way. And then you're familiar with the ideas of like composition over inheritance. So probably that there wasn't a learning curve for you no, on that no. respect. So no. yeah. do you spend much time on spring anymore? Uh, no, I do not. Um, like every so often I check out what's new. Um, but no, no, I haven't. Um, haven't probably written a spring up for a few years now. I actually seriously would. Um, there are a lot of apps that I would, or services I would build using Spring Boot. Um, yeah. I think it's a great experience. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I think they're, they're doing a nice job. Yeah, they have. It just so happens that not, none of what I'm doing at the moment um, is naturally suited to the JVM or Java. So basically these days it's TypeScript or Python. Yeah. So are you, are you still working on Atomist? Is it still um, I'm still a um, advisor at Docker. Yes. So I'm not, I'm not okay. working on code, but I'm kind of helping with strategy. And, um, so Docker acquired Atomist. Is that 
Yes, and Docker required Animist in June. Okay, congratulations. Yeah. That's so, exciting. Thank you. So, yeah, I think you can expect to see, obviously, the security features from Atomist being integrated with um, Docker Hub. But I think you can also expect to see some of the Atomist automation features um, gradually appear um, through um, Docker. So, yeah, I mean, the, the team's really happy. I think it's, I think it's a really Seems nice like thing. good synchronicity there and good yeah. pairing of technologies yeah um maybe maybe step back a little bit and tell us a little bit about atomist and what it is and what it does and talk about that for a few minutes so atomist i mean i guess fundamentally made the mistake of trying to do too much um but essentially what atomist is is an event based system um centered on a database that observes everything that happens through your delivery process. So there's a database that's correlating things. So you make a commit, it can correlate that to, say, building a container, various security checks that might occur on that to deploying to a Kubernetes pod. So it's constantly, when it ingests in events, it's looking at this database and correlating that event with what it what it knows about, for example, this commit chart, which is usually the fundamental um, correlation uh, element. And that turns out to be pretty powerful because it enables you, firstly, to have a system of record of what happened um, from developers commit to production, but it also gives you the ability to see how things are changing over time to yeah. see and respond potentially to deltas over time. So essentially, we um, pivoted to security use cases around that because obviously one of the most one of the most natural immediate values you can get from knowing the state of the world and the impact of changes of the world is answering certain security questions about you know, <laughs> increases in vulnerabilities. Yeah, um, and you know that. Um, was the core of our business when we sold. But, you know, I think that Docker totally gets that this database is something that's quite generalized and I think actually unique. And so I think they see that as an interesting um, part of their world moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, and the, I remember um, years ago when you and I were talking about Atomist and and you were explaining it to me, the, the thing that resonated for me around it was that it's kind of bringing the the tooling that Google has around Google three, uh, the the mono repo at Google, to mm. a microservice micro you know rep, multi repo world, and the ability to to take a, a whole bunch of repos and apply consistent policies and checking and and have those defined externally to all of the the different repos. So kind of bringing a lot of the mono repo benefits, but to a multi repo world. And it's something that everyone that's not Google needs, I think, you know, every, everyone except for Google has multiple repos and no way to, to manage policies and, and observability around the pipelines from, from commit to deployment in the way that Atomist was doing. So I was, yeah, I was very fascinated by the, the problem space that it is in. The way that you described it, reminded me of what Kafka does with the events. Is there 
like a ledger the ledger yeah the ledger yeah we'll we'll just keep track of all the events yeah Yeah, well actually in the the core of atomus technically um today is datomic um so yeah which is an immutable ledger yeah yeah Hmm. Yeah. and that's why you use closure so that yeah well actually do you know jim clark um, yeah. The chief architect at Atomist. Jim yeah. um, is pretty big closure um, fan, but yeah. yeah, given that the correct, the best fit for the database was definitely Datomic for what we needed, and that actually enabled us to solve some really interesting problems of changes over time. Yeah. Prior to that, we'd successfully achieved the relationships, and we had a very strong solution for that, but we did. We imposed a lot of work on the author of, um, you know, an automation to track changes over time. They'd have to go and query. Whereas what we've been able to do with Datomic is not only um, keep the state at any point in time, but effectively respond to those changes. So at that point, you know, writing the code in Clojure was a very natural um, thing. That sounds like maybe you took some of your experience from the world of Akka and event sourcing and CQRS and applied that or those architectural principles in some way to to what you're doing at Atomist. Is that at all? Oh, definitely. I mean, like Jim architected that part of the system, but I know Jim Jim actually did Scala for a while. He Jim, yeah. I believe, tried at one point to evangelize Scala within Oracle, and I don't think he had great. Um, success there. <laughs> no, um, I cannot yeah. imagine. Uh, the, um, yeah. Steep uphill path. Oh, yeah, I think there's a hard no yeah. for that one. Yeah, yes, well, actually, actually, apparently I heard that um, Oracle these days is insistent that everything is in Java. Yes. Uh, so apparently if Oracle acquire companies, they will rewrite the stuff in Java, which seems... <laughs> Yeah, it's, a it's a bit extreme, but yeah. yeah. Well, they're committed. Absolutely. <laughs> they are. They are they bought Java and they're gonna they're gonna run with it. Yeah. Uh so it's cool to hear that Atomist stuff is going well and with all the uh open source supply chain stuff that's happening, it seems like it's a, a good good time for Atomist to continue to grow at Docker. So that's that's cool. Does even open source have supply chain problems? Oh yeah, <laughs> especially oh, yeah. the massive, no. massive supply yeah. chain. Um, it's it's all malicious. Oh, oh, it's, oh yeah, okay. It's, yeah. it's people. Well, with the supply chain, I mean, the beauty of the kind of database we have is when something like the log for shell exploit occurs, you can ask the question instantly of where is this package um, across um, a customer's estate. So, you know, I think that because the world is always being, we've always got an up-to-date model of the world, it means you don't have to wait for scans. You can say, okay, we know exactly where this thing is. Yeah. Yeah, it's that bringing that, the, the mono-repo functionality to the multi-repo world. So, yeah. yeah, it's being able to query the database and say, you know, across all of my many repos, where is this dependency being used? And, yeah. 
That's cool. Well, and and by using Atomist, I'm sure that there's the ability to assemble the the like uh, bomb, the the or yes. what do they call it, yes. S bomb or whatever, um, yeah. from from the dependencies as as an Atomist plugin or something. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, good good timing for Atomist and and it's still going right. So if people are interested yeah. in, in that, uh, they, they and yeah, I think well. I think watch the watch the space with Docker. I think it'd be interesting to see as these yeah. um, features start to surface. Yeah. Um, cool. So you, uh, you're you still doing some of that stuff. And then uh, you'd also mentioned that you're doing some chess stuff. So I want to hear hear about what your exploration is. Yeah, well, like everybody else, I watched uh, Queen's Gambit. Did yeah. you guys watch? Yeah. yeah. It, was, yeah it kind of brought, um, brought me back to... Um, I was probably about two or three years. I was pretty serious about junior chess played in the Australian junior championship when I was 16. Um, and I hadn't played chess for 30 years. Uh, but I started to get back into chess and then I started to get interested in the state of chess software. Um, one of the things that I did, actually, I think it was my third summer holidays after third year computer science. I wrote a chess engine in C++. Um, And so I'd always had a bit of curiosity about that space. Um, But what I'm really most interested in is not so much engines. That's a solved problem. I mean, the engine, Magnus Carlsen, the world champion, has as much chance of beating the best engine as I have of beating him, Um, (laughs) which is to... He has as much about the same chance of getting a draw with the best engine as I have of getting a draw with him. And both of those things are exceptionally unlikely. So the um, engines really are a solved problem. I mean, the way we got here is actually totally fascinating. Um, But what I'm really interested in is trying to bring AI and software to revolutionize how people learn chess. Oh, cool. Like engines have can now play chess at a essentially godlike level, um, but they most of it's neural network based now, so they we're can't. Not telling you why it. they're making the decision why? they're making. No, they can't. Um, they don't even know. Whereas um, with chess training, I think there's still we haven't seen quite the same degree of transformation. So I've been been playing around with um, experimentation on this. I don't know whether it's potentially a business, whether it's open source, whether it's just something that um, entertains me a few hours a day running code in TypeScript or Python, but um, we'll see. That sounds really interesting to me because when I was, I think I was like eight or something, somebody gave me a chess set for my birthday and I started learning the game and then um, my father had never played chess and I started teaching him how to play the game. And while I was teaching him, he beat me. And that just like, I've, I've, I've never wanted to play chess since then. It just seems pointless because whoever I teach is just going to, well, like you, I, I kind of nursed you into mountain biking and now I can't keep up with you. So it's like this keeps happening to me. So I'm just going, I'm out. You're, Whereas your world your game would be kind of like a, you know, like when spell checking came along and you go, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, it kind of just gently 
taught you to be a better speller. And if I, if I had an experience like what you're talking about, I'm going, okay, you know, don't, don't just flatten me every time I fly and train, you know, GNU chess does that, you know, it doesn't matter where you set it. It's just like, bam, you're dead. And it's like, if it would just kind of guide me into it, that could be a whole different experience. Yeah. Yeah, what yeah. I started off was writing something that was based on a database. So I ingested two million Grandmaster games and shoved them in a Postgres database. And essentially, the interface was enabled you to explore opening theory and games. So you could go and drill into an opening variation, look at all the Grandmaster games. And it was actually quite nice but i mean in terms of potential business use it's very much a niche market because it's built around people who care about opening theory so you know when you look at say people who play online probably the top 10 percent maybe the top maybe the top 25 percent care to some degree about opening theory um so like any most games that i play there's probably going to be like five to ten moves of theory on each side um but there's the majority of players don't aren't yet at the level they care about that or who knows maybe they're never going to want to care about that and so i think the the challenge is to try to deliver value at different points so i've gone back based on some feedback i've gotten i'm trying to rethink it to provide value for people who are less experienced and, you know, that's often things like, well, you played knight to g5. There's a black pawn on h6, which can take you a knight. Um, this is how pawns capture. Um, you don't want to do that. Uh, maybe maybe slightly higher than that level, but, you know, something that is kind of more, more basic. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, yeah. I think the holy grail is to try to explain the why of engine move choice. And that that is an incredibly difficult um, problem. I mean, what, I mean, it's hard enough to do in for a grandmaster. In the history of computer chess engines. Um, it's, I'll give it to you anyway. Um, yeah, it's really it. quite fascinating. So back in, um, back in the 60s and 70s, I mean, people have been working on chess engines since at least the early 60s. Up until the mid 70s, they played, not that much under beginner level. Um, then they started getting better as computers got better. And they just used Minimax algorithm with, you know, some tree pruning. And you got to the point where basically with a relatively simple terminal evaluation function, which would decide whether the position was better for white or black at the end of each variation, IBM mm-hmm. built some really, really fancy hardware and Deep Blue beat Kasparov in 1997. So essentially you had an incredibly powerful machine, not consumer grade hardware by any means, that could play marginally better than the world champion in 1997 by essentially- No no strategy beyond the the next move. The strategy is in the terminal position evaluator. So when it gets to the end of a variation, it decides who stands better. And it would, obviously, you just count the material, but that will still, regardless of how deep your search is, that will still not not have a chance of even drawing a game against Kasparov. Um, where, but you have to add things like piece square tables, so you give a bonus for pieces being on good squares, mobility, king safety. So it does some simple evaluations and says, yeah, this looks better for white, this looks better for black. 
Um, but nothing, nothing really clever. Yeah. So another roll about 10 years, 15 years forward, there's not really any great advances in how engines work, um, except more efficient search, but, you know, just incremental. And hardware gets better. So you get to like, say, 2010, where now your laptop can beat the world champion. Probably 2015, maybe a good iPhone can beat the <laughs> world champion. And yeah. then the DeepMind project and um, AlphaZero emerged from DeepMind and Google. And they applied neural networks and taught the engine via reinforcement learning with self-play. Um, that became, I think it played a few billion games against itself and had become the best in the world within a couple of days, um, even better than the other engines. And the difference was it didn't do as deep search, but it used a neural network to evaluate terminal positions. And the neural network evaluation is incredibly strong. So now Stockfish, which is the leading open source engine, has incorporated neural network technology and is actually better, uh, is still the huh. best engine. Um, but there's also something called Leela Chess Zero, which is based on the Google stuff inspired by that, which they're both open source. Um, and they're both incredibly good and they're both kind of jicking it up. But it was really fascinating how neural networks change things where for the first time we didn't understand what the evaluation function was. Um, like, for example, any reasonable chess player could tell you with the stockfish evaluation function, say, before the neural network explosion, yeah, well, I mean, this is just basic stuff. Um, right. I understand all of this. You know, it knew why it was making the decisions it was. was the you know Leela Chess Zero um, neural network evaluation is. I haven't verified this myself, but I have it on good authority that with zero look ahead, Leela Chess Zero plays at international master level, which is just stunning because its positional instincts are so good that it can just look at a position, look at every position that would result from every single legal move and just say, oh, this one smells best. And it is incredibly strong even doing that. But it has no idea why. It has no idea why. And it's actually been quite fascinating that it started to revolutionize top-level chess. There's a really fascinating, for anyone listening to this who's um, seriously interested in chess, um, there's a wonderful book by an English grandmaster called Matthew Sadler called The Silicon Road to Chess Improvement. Huh. And he's been interested, he's a very strong grandmaster and he's been interested in engines for years. And he talks about some of his own personal um, training regimes. If he, for example, wants to learn a new opening variation, the typical way that you would have done it is look at all the games that human grandmasters have played from that yeah. position. Because you're playing he against them. Do that. So you're, he you're sets learning up how to two beat different them. engines to play 100 game pairs. Um, with alternating colors. And then he has a look at the games and um, figures out what the plans they came up with were. Yeah. Uh, so, so he's he's building a model based on the the grandmasters that he's playing against. No, he's building a model based on engines. He no oh, okay. longer yeah. looks at human games predominantly. Yeah. He looks at engine games. So he creates okay. engine games. Uh, from any position with engines configured differently in different engines so that he gets different games. 
and then looks so, at so the I guess ideas. this is the the interesting evolution is that the grandmasters used to play against other grandmasters and have to like train their models around the humans they were playing against but now the humans are training their mental models against the computer models exactly and they do it not by playing the computer because that's pointless even for a strong grandmaster they do it often by having engines evaluate positions and deeply looking at the lines that the engines are suggesting or creating engine games between engines where they look at the output. And it has changed the style of top-level chess. There is now, in the last probably five years, a style of super grandmaster chess that's never existed before um, among people, and it is substantially influenced by the stylistic findings of engines. But the problem is that people have to do the work of figuring that out. So even a grandmaster has to sit down for half an hour and think, what the hell does this move do? Um, (laughs) Wow. It's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, what an expansive space that is that it just blows my mind every time I think about it, all the variations that exist in chess. And Mm. it's, um, I, I prefer the, finite world of programming and programming languages where it's like you know not so many variations hey yeah you say that but i keep finding these things where it's like oh i thought it was like that but actually it's uh no there are variations i guess we kind of do what smells good in programming Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i like that you you use that terminology rod for Mm -hmm. describing how the engines or the 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 ais determine what's nice it's like oh this smells good that's a really good way of putting it yeah semicolons (laughs) they don't smell good (laughs) certainly i felt you know when i said i didn't play chess for 30 years one of the reasons for that was that um programming scratched the same itch for me Mm -hmm. and i could get paid for that uh so it's Chess is a very beautiful game, and I'm glad that I've gotten back into it. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm glad that I'm um, gradually improving again. Uh, but yeah, there's I think a lot of the beauty is similar to the beauty in programming, huh. uh, and you do get it. It actually there's a um, former world um, championship contender. Uh, ex-Soviet grandmaster called Viktor Korchnoi used to say that you should regularly learn new openings because when you learn a new opening, you learn something else about chess. And it's a bit like learning a new programming language. There are these things where it's just, there's this whole set of ideas that you've never encountered before. Um, And so, oh, okay. So in this position, um, Black can launch an attack with his A-pawn and B-pawn and the bishop comes to C5 or, you know, you can learn these whole concepts that kind of feel like they're expanding at least your chess brain in the same way as like learning Scala. Do you suppose we'll ever get a, like a machine learning system that can invent new games? Yeah, I, I certainly, yeah, I, I would definitely imagine we could. Yeah, I mean, ideally. <laughs> well, yeah. Exactly. How does it know what it would is? have to filter. It, they smell good. They smell good. Yeah, I, I, I totally think you could. I mean, what I would hope for first, though, is 
a way of explaining the choices made by a system like a neural network. Um, yes, not only would that be really cool for chess, but, mm. you know, I actually wonder if civilization will survive unless it's possible for other things. Like, I mean, as these determinations of what smells good from a neural network affects more and more of our lives, um, it's kind of pretty important that we know why why that um, decision was made. Yeah. But I thought that was like a big part of it is that we're using, we're creating a scientific model, but human isn't creating it. A machine is doing it just by looking at a ton of data and not, yeah, it doesn't have a reason why it says, oh, I should add this little bump in my algorithm. It just says it fits the data. But it, it doesn't, there is really no way of knowing why. Like, I mean, if you look at some of these massively over-parameterized models now that they're using, I mean, there can be billions um, of neurons in the model. Uh, and, you know, it's just totally opaque. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the solution is just more data. Apparently. <laughs> Always. Well, I mean, the solution, I guess, if we can't explain it, the solution is ensuring that it gets the right training data so you don't get things like, for example, that Microsoft um, chatbot that banned people. <laughs> just went, full, went yeah. full Hitler in, yeah. within a few minutes. Yeah. 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 yeah we, uh, a friend and I were playing with um, some machine learning. Uh, it would generate stories. And one of the things that we discovered was that it was really tuned to be positive. I think they were saying, well, we don't want that thing to happen. And if you wanted it to go dark, you really had to push it. You know, you had to go, and then his puppy died. And then he, you know, that, you know, and, and, and only then you, you'd really have to, because otherwise it would go. And then he got a new puppy and he was really happy. Oh you know, it was just really hard to get it. To... So the data that was trained on was, was much more positively oriented. They had dialed some knobs because the, yeah. not, uh, yeah. that's a tragedy. Yeah. Hadn't been trained on tragedy. No, no. Yeah. One of, so this reminds me of Dolly, the, the, uh, image generator. Uh, which was it was fascinating to see the images that it generated. But for me, the most amazing thing of Dolly was not the images that it generated. It was the combinations of things that humans came up with. It was like the human creativity, the way that humans used the tool was actually much more amazing to me than the actual tool itself. So it's like the human creativity element to this mm -hmm. is, is always the the thing that makes it that gives you the i don't know the human connection of it the human wonder that when it's just purely the ai you're just like yeah no no wonder there yeah. so yeah it is funny that with um i remember when i was at uni our professor um was the head of department was enthusiastic about ai and this was during the ai winter um, so he used to cynically define AI as the set of things that don't work um, because he said as soon as anything is solved, they say, eh, that's not really AI. Um, whereas roll the clock forward, a lot of the algorithms are the same. Like, I mean, neural networks have been around since the late 50s. 
And there haven't really been that many radical advances. I mean, dropout layers were clever, but um, there hasn't. I mean, they if you look at a current, the way a neural network works today and you show it to a computer scientist in the late 50s, they would totally understand it and say, yeah, huh. that's how it should work. And yeah. yet the difference is that you've got faster machines and you've got many, many, many more data points. And so this stuff that we knew how to do suddenly starts working huh. and having real-world consequences. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. Well, I don't know. Anything else? My mind has expanded. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Rod. It's good to see you. And, um, yeah, fun to learn from you as always. So appreciate your time. And, um, yeah. That was, that was well, fun. great to see you guys again. I really hope that I um, get out to your mountains. Yep. Yeah, we'll mm -hmm. get you out to Crest of you uh, next winter. So <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Rod. Have a good one.